when the guys did that song at the uh, concert, um, it was to my kids' great delight. They enjoyed it very much, and uh, they're pretty discerning music critics. So, well done. Thank you, guys. So, some of you have asked about this thing on my face here and the, the stitches that are going down under my eye here, and all I can say is you should see the other guy. So, yeah, yeah. No, um, <laughs> so I, uh, I just had a little bit of uh, basal cell carcinoma. I'm sure some of you have had that before, and I had it removed this week, and uh, was not expecting it to go all the way down my face like that, but uh, everything's fine. So um, get the stitches out on Tuesday, nothing to worry about at all. So anyway, thank you for your concern over that and your prayers, um, but we are all good. So open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 1 this morning. That's where we're going to be, Titus 1. I don't know if you've ever been given a task in your life that seemed very big and broad and almost overwhelming. Uh, Maybe when you were a child, you were given something to do, and uh, you thought, there's no way I can accomplish that. Uh, My first summer in college, so finished my freshman year, and I went home to serve as a youth intern at my home church, and The youth pastor that I had had growing up was my boss, and he was a dear friend of mine. He actually ended up being in my wedding, so we were really close, and he gave me this task at the beginning of the summer, and it was plan the summer ministry schedule. That was it, okay? So I'm 19, and uh, it included all sorts of things, service projects. It was pretty active. We had stuff going on throughout the week, during the day. We had a big Friday night fun event every week, and so... Uh, It was really a big task for someone so young to do, and he asked me, do you want me to help you? Do you want me to sort of give you the ideas and then you go execute them? And I very confidently said, no, 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 I'm good. I got this. And uh, I I remember going downstairs to my desk and pulling out uh, like a blank calendar for the summer and sitting at my desk and looking at that blank calendar and going, what in the world am I going to do? <laughs> I have to fill all these time slots with events and with ministry things and activities and all of that. And how am I going to accomplish this? I have no idea where to begin. And so eventually I was able to put together a pretty decent summer schedule. And there were a few hiccups along the way. I double booked one particular day and we were doing one event and This other group called and said, where are you guys? And I was like, oh, no, (laughs) I double booked today. We can't be there. And so, but overall, things went pretty well. But I'll never forget sitting there with that blank calendar being overwhelmed by the summer in front of me. And I, I think there was probably something of that same sense of being overwhelmed uh, that Titus had when he got these instructions from the Apostle Paul in this little book of Titus. The letter was written to Titus, obviously. I mean, that's the title. That's who he's giving instructions to. But it was supposed to be read in the churches. And really, this letter was almost like uh, uh, something that gave Titus the authority. It was a document that gave him the authority to do what Paul wanted him to do. Because Paul was an apostle. And so he gave this to Titus and said, now go and accomplish and execute what I have called you and what the Lord has called you to do in the churches there in on the island of Crete. And so 
uh, he gave him this important task that he was supposed to accomplish, and it was sort of a big picture task that he was supposed to do. And ultimately, that goal, that task was for the furtherance of the gospel and of the Great Commission. That's the big picture goal, but he gave him a specific way to go about that. And I want to show you that task. Look in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. This was his mission. This is what the whole book is about, really, the book of Titus, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. All right, so Paul's telling him, this is why you're there on that island, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, Crete was an island, a fairly good-sized island in the Mediterranean Sea, just off the coast of Greece and sort of in between Greece and Turkey. Now, if you remember in the book of Acts, Paul does a lot of his missionary travels in what is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, that whole area with Ephesus and Corinth and all of that, and then in Greece as well. Here's a map to show you where Crete was. So you can see it there kind of with Greece to the one side and Turkey to the other side. You see Jerusalem down there. Uh, But this is the island where Titus was. And Paul had done ministry just briefly on this island with Titus. And then he had some other tasks that he had to accomplish and he had to go see to. And so he left the island of Crete and he left or sent Titus back there in order to fulfill the mission that he needed to do there, all right? His mission was twofold, and we just read it there. He was to put everything in order, to make sure that the churches were organized, and also the the main way to accomplish that organization was to appoint elders in every town. And so what the situation was, you can see on this map, there's a few towns listed, the Phoenix, Fairhavens, you know, there, there's a few of those listed there, but what happened was in on the island of Crete, there were little towns or little cities all over the island, mostly around the coast, but some in the middle of the island in the countryside. And so Titus was to travel around to all of these little towns, and there would have been churches that were just beginning to grow and had just come into existence through Paul's ministry. And Titus was to go to those brand new churches, and he was to get to know the people there, and he was to appoint elders. Now, that, that task of appointing elders would ensure that the gospel would continue to grow in those churches and in the lives of those people. And ultimately, that would ensure that because of the growth in their lives through good leadership, that they would reach out into their communities, they would share the gospel with others, and more disciples would be made. That was the, the task that Titus was supposed to accomplish. He was supposed to install and appoint qualified leaders to guide and to shepherd the church. And so that was the goal, and he was to do that with apostolic authority, appoint new elders. Now, that's a, that's a challenging task. I mean, you think about that when you have that sort of blank calendar in front of you, and you're looking at all of these different towns on the island of Crete, and you're going, okay, I've got to go around. I've got to go to each town, find the church which he probably knew some of them. I've got to get to know them, figure out who meets these qualifications and officially install these elders and organize the churches in the midst of that. And so Paul tells him to do this. And the the mission of advancing the kingdom is not going to grow and it's not going to continue without organization and qualified leaders in the churches. 
And so after he gives him this big picture task, he tells him in verses 6 to 9, this is what those leaders look like. Here's the type of man that you are looking for to install as an elder. And that's what we're going to look at and study this morning. Now, when I say that, we're going to study what type of qualifications there are for elders. Probably some of you think, well, this isn't for me (laughs) because I'm not going to be an elder. I have no aspirations to be an elder. But the application of this passage is not just intended for elders. It's not just for the six of us here who serve as elders. Obviously, that's important, and it is for those guys. But this is intended for the entire church so that you will know what sort of men are to be leading and shepherding. You'll know what God wants for those who are going to care for his church. It's also true that as you go and look, as we look at these qualities together this morning, all of these qualities, except the last one, the ability to teach and instruct, all of these qualities are required of every believer elsewhere in the New Testament. And so these are not exceptional or crazy specific things that God wants for these men. These are things that every believer should be growing in. But elders must demonstrate these things in their lives because of the particular task that they've been given. The other thing I'll say about this is leaders are important in the church, but they're not the end game. The goal here is not just to have elders in the church. The goal is for these elders to organize the church and to lead the church toward something. And that something is the accomplishment of the mission which is the Great Commission. That's the ultimate goal. And so leaders, qualified elders, are a means to that end. And we all work together toward that goal and toward that end. Leaders exist to further the mission. That's the job. So this morning, we're going to look at five qualifications of biblical church leadership that promote God's mission in his church. All right? So The qualifications here for biblical church leadership, when leaders have these things and they're leading in the right direction, it promotes the accomplishment of the mission in the church. That's the ultimate goal. So five qualifications of biblical church leadership. The first one of these is found in verse 6, and it is that leaders, elders must be above reproach. Look at verse 6. If anyone... Here's the qualifications. He starts in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. Now, there are a lot of different qualities mentioned in these verses. You'll see them as we go along. It's almost overwhelming when you start to look at all of them. But this sort of serves as the umbrella quality. Everything else is caught up under this quality, and everything else explains this characteristic. This is the big picture thing that Paul is looking for for elders. The rest of the traits work out what it means to be above reproach. So what does that mean? That sounds pretty high and lofty. Well, the idea here is some of your translations may say blameless is a word. Now, it it doesn't mean perfect, obviously, because then no one could serve as an elder. Paul couldn't serve as an elder. And so it doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean free from sin. But what it does mean is that to serve as an elder, Paul was looking for men who couldn't be accused of anything that would hinder their leadership. He's looking for guys. Now, keep in mind, this is a young church. So you're not talking about guys who've been believers for 40 or 50 years. It's a newly formed church at the beginning of the New Testament. 
And so he's looking for guys who don't have any glaring moral weaknesses that people can say, what is going on in that church over there? We know Tom, and he has all sorts of issues in his life. That's what Paul's looking for. Their reputation is unblemished. Nothing can stick when it's thrown at them. But this quality is also mentioned at the beginning of verse 7. Look down there with me. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Now here, when he mentions that, he uses a different word. He uses the word overseer, which is a synonym for elder. It just kind of gives a different part of the job. Elders, shepherd, overseers, oversee the administration and the structure and the organization of the church. But here, he gives you a reason why an overseer has to be above reproach. I mean, look back at verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward. And here's why these qualifications are so important. This is really the heart of the matter. What's, a, what's it mean to be God's steward? Well, this is talking about someone who's managing another person's household. They oversee the finances, the day-to-day operations, the organization, the facilities of someone's household. This is a property manager. Now, Bethany and I used to watch (laughs) the show Downton Abbey. I'm sure some of you have seen that show before. We watched a couple seasons of it. And if you're not familiar with it, the whole show is about this giant house in 1920s England and about the family and the servants who live in this house. And they're all hired servants, and it's filled with them. And there's one guy, the butler, who sort of serves as the manager of the household. He's responsible for everything that takes place within the house. He doesn't own it. He's hired, and he serves there on behalf of the master of the house. And he feels a deep sense of responsibility for his task. And the guy in this particular show is very British in every way, and so it's fantastic. The house doesn't belong to him, but he's responsible for the master's household. Now, the elder must be a man of integrity. He must be someone who has no glaring moral weakness because he is managing God's house, the church. The church is God's property. It's Christ's bride. And you don't give the key to your house and give someone oversight of your house who has questionable integrity. That's not the way we work as sinful human beings, and that's certainly not how how God works over his house. He's not going to give oversight to someone who can't be trusted. And so that's what Paul is telling Titus here. Find someone who's above reproach, who doesn't have any glaring moral weakness. So what does it look like in more detail to be above reproach? The next four qualifications here. He's attentive to family, and this is the rest of verse 6 here. Look at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, and here's what that looks like, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The family serves as the proving ground for leadership in God's church. Now, of course, that's not all the family is. It's one of the most important institutions that we have in our lives, but You can tell how a man will lead, and you can tell a man's integrity by the relationships that he has within his own family. If he cannot love and care for his family, he won't be able to love and care for God's family or God's church. 
And this specifically means two relationships. First of all, the relationship with his wife, and second, the relationship with his children, if he has any. Look back at verse 6. He is the husband of one wife. Now, that phrase, if you've ever studied this at all, that phrase, people take that to mean a whole host of different things, and they apply it in different ways. Some people think it, the elder has to be married. Some people think he, it simply means he can't be a polygamist, which is not a great temptation in our culture today. Some people think the elder can't be divorced at all, even maybe before he was saved. And when you start to really study, we won't go into all the details, but when you start to really look at those possible interpretations, none of those can really be justified by this. And I think the best and simplest way to understand this is the elder has to be a one-woman man. That's a good translation of this. What does that mean? He's devoted to his wife. He only has eyes for her. He keeps himself for her. He is taken by his wife. And given to her. That's the type of guy you want leading the church. A guy who's committed to his spouse. And he proves that relationally, sexually, and emotionally. He is only devoted to his wife. Now beyond his wife, an elder has to have attentive focus and involved relationships with his children. Look back at verse 6. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, we have, to, we have to talk about this a little bit when we're thinking about elders. There's often a discussion here that maybe this means that to serve as an elder, someone has to have believing as in the sense of born-again Christian children. Now, I'm reading from the ESV here. It says believers, but another translation, and I think one that's, that's probably better, is the word faithful. They're faithful. They're obedient children. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, look back at verse 6, they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And so those are both behaviors. Those are lifestyles. These kids, that describes someone who is wild, who's rebellious, who's not listening to his parents, his or her parents, and disobedient to them. Those are behaviors. And so I think it's best to take this characteristic that they have to be faithful as describing children who follow the lead of their father. They're not perfect. Dad's not perfect. At times they're disobedient. But in general, the father is able to lead and able to guide his household so that the children obey and they follow along. They may not be believers, but they continue in what their dad says for the most part. And they're obedient to his word. And he has a good relationship with them. And so what, what you really see here, I try to back up and sort of think big picture and not just these specific qualifications, but what are these, these qualifications are describing a man who is given to his family and is attentive to his family. He's able to lead his home in such a way that the children will follow and it's obvious that he loves his wife. That's what this looks like. This guy is actively involved in the discipleship of his children and he's able to lead his home well. Now, let's think broader application here for all of us, particularly for dads of children here. Let me just encourage all of us, and I absolutely put myself in this as well. It's easy as a father to sort of shove off the responsibility of parenting and discipling our children onto our wives. If your wife is at home a lot with the kids, especially when they're younger, 
however that relationship works. Sometimes it's easy just to assume that she's going to take the bulk of the parenting and the bulk of the discipling of the children. And God's plan, I think evidenced here by his desire for elders, God's plan is that his church would be filled with men who take an active role in their families, with their wives and with their children. And they take a role in the discipline and the discipleship and the leadership of their children. That's their desire. And so if you, if you aren't in the habit of taking the lead with your kids, if you have young kids, even if you don't, let me just encourage you to find one area in which you can be intentional with your kids. Read with them. Discuss the lesson from Sunday church with them. Memorize scripture with them. Teach them a biblical story that applies to some life situation that's happening or something you see in the news. Apply God's word to that. Find one area to be intentional with your kids in leading them toward Christ and start there and then that'll snowball. That's the goal. Let it grow into much more of a actively focused discipleship relationship. That's what God wants for the men in his church and for their leadership in the homes of the church. And that's what elders must demonstrate in their lives. So the first two of these qualifications, elders have to be above reproach. And in a parallel passage, Timothy describes this as they manage their household well. But they also have to avoid certain habits of life. And this brings us to our third one. They avoid self-will. Now, this is quite a list here in verse 7. Look down there with me. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be, so here's the list of qualifications that they shouldn't be. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. It's always interesting for us as parents to see who our kids will respond to. There are certain people that when they come into our home, our kids are ecstatic that they're there. They love it. And there's a common thread with those people that we've picked up, and it's the reason why our kids love those people in particular. And it's because kids know, I think they're like dogs in this way, they know when someone is all about them. They know when someone is really interested in them, and they're giving their attention to the kids. And our kids delight in that. One of our babysitters back in Virginia, she was all about our kids when she came in, and our kids absolutely loved her. They still ask about her. And if we were to hire a babysitter and he or she came in, plopped on the couch, pulled out his or her phone, and started texting and wasn't even looking at our kids, we would definitely question our choice of a babysitter. Now, why? Because that person is self-focused rather than others focused. And these qualities in verse 7 describe someone, I think, altogether who is all about self. These are the type of things that a person demonstrates and lives out in their lives, in his or her life, when they're all about self. And these characteristics, these vices, cannot describe God's steward because who puts someone like this, who's self-willed in charge, of his household. Nobody does this, and God doesn't either. You don't put a selfish person in charge of something that you value. 
Look with me at these descriptions here. He begins, he cannot be arrogant. Someone who is stubborn and who is self-willed. They're unwilling to empathize with other people. They're unwilling to see the world from someone else's perspective. This person is always right, and they know it all the time. And because of that stubbornness, look at verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. This sort of stubbornness leads to being quick-tempered. It doesn't take much to get the quick-tempered man emotionally charged. He doesn't have a healthy relationship with his emotions. Emotions are a wonderful gift from God, and they, they, they're helpful in responding appropriately to the world around us. But when our emotions drive how we interact with people, it's not good. And so he, his self-will leads to frustration and tantrums almost. Someone who's consumed by selfish passions will abuse substances, and particularly alcohol, to the point of drunkenness here with alcohol. Look at verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard. Obviously, Scripture prohibits drunkenness, and the one who's going to lead God's church cannot give control of his mind over to alcohol to the point where he can't think straight. And he can't be involved in the overindulgence of alcohol. Next, look at this. The self-consumed person is going to be violent. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or drunkard, or violent. Some of your translations might say pugnacious, and I love that word. (laughs) Get the picture of a little pug dog that always looks angry, right? And I think that's the description here. It's, I like to think of this person as they have a chip on their shoulder. They're always ready to let everyone know how big and bad they are. You don't mess with my turf. That's this type of guy. You can't have that type of person leading God's church. And finally, in this verse 7, things that an elder can't be, they can't be greedy for gain. They can't be controlled by material wealth. There's a selfishness inherent in the over-pursuit of material wealth to the point of greediness. They have to be content with what God has given. So you can see, I think, just in a brief explanation, each of these character qualities develops in the life of a man who has self on the throne of his heart. He thinks he is the most important person in the world, and you can't have someone like that leading God's church. So rather than having self in the driver's seat, he must have God and others as his focus. And that's verse 8, and that's our next qualification. He's aimed at that which is good. And remember, this is applicable to all of us. This, these are the type of characteristics that God wants in all of our lives. So the opposite of the self-centered person is someone who is turned outward and who wants to serve God and others. Uh, author Tim Keller describes a person who is truly humble, and it's not what you would think it is. And I love this, and I think this is so helpful here for what an elder should be and what all of us should be. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seemed to be totally interested in us. Sometimes we think of humility as, oh, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not good, I'm always messing up, you know, sort of down on self. And that's not humility. 
Humility is engaged in others, and here's why. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. It is not a concern for me. And some of us go into every life situation thinking about how it relates to us. I'm guilty of this all the time. Rather than coming to a point where we just forget about self because we're so interested in others. And we want to see them do well. And we want to encourage them. And we want to be a blessing to them. And I think that description, thinking of myself less, being concerned about others, that is a beautiful summary of the characteristics that are given in verse 8. Look at these characteristics with me. Here's what the elder should be. Shouldn't be in verse 7, should be in verse 8. But he should be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, I'm not going to go through every one of those characteristics in detail, but I want to highlight a couple. First, hospitality. Why does an elder have to demonstrate hospitality? That's so interesting here. Hospitality is opening your home to others to show them kindness and make them the center of attention. You know, in in the Bible, hospitality is very similar to our term etiquette. Now, why do you practice etiquette? It's to make, ultimately, the goal is to make other people feel comfortable. They know how to approach a situation. They know how to act in a situation. And I want to act with etiquette when I go into a situation to make other people feel, feel at home and to feel comfortable. And so the idea of hospitality is the elder invites people into his home and makes them the center of attention. And it's all about them. It's a very tangible way, a tangible practice of putting other people first. And ultimately, it's a practice that turns my heart outward. Because it's impossible to remain self-centered when you have other people in your home and beforehand you think specifically of questions you can ask them to show that you're interested in them and just to find out about them, to find out who they are, how the Lord's been working in their life. It's impossible to remain self-centered when we do that. And that's for all of us, not just elders. But elders need to demonstrate this quality because it shows that they're outward focused and concerned about God's church. Next, look at verse 8. The elder must be a lover of good. Well, what does that mean? A lover of what is good. They're focused on others, but that focus is aimed in a particular direction. They love it when other people develop character qualities which are good. They want people to grow toward Christ-likeness. They want to see people move in their lives toward that which is which is good. Uh, It's like a piano teacher who loves her students and can see where they need help to grow. She has a goal for them. I want them to end up here because this is good if they can play this piece of music. And so the teacher takes steps to get them there. Well, that's the quality that God wants for the leaders in his church. They're to value what God values and help other people value that as well. And then there's a whole list of qualities that help to make that happen. Look back at verse 8. They're hospitable, a lover of good. They're self-controlled rather than self-willed. They're able to control their passions. They're upright. They live with justice. 
They act appropriately toward other people in various situations and relationships. God values justice. You can see that throughout Scripture. And so the elder has to demonstrate a good understanding of what it means to live a just life and to see justice enacted in society as well. They have to be upright, holy, just like they relate appropriately to other people. They relate appropriately to God in holiness and disciplined. You wouldn't want someone overseeing your house who is not disciplined, and God wants the same thing for his church. That's the type of person that God wants to put in charge of his church, to lead his church. The author John Piper gives a really helpful definition of spiritual leadership, and I've gone back to this time and time again, and I think this is so helpful in summarizing what elders should be all about. And really, I think what all of us should be about in our relationships with one another. But I define spiritual leadership as knowing where God wants people to be, taking the initiative to use God's methods to get them there in reliance on God's power. So you can notice about this definition of spiritual leadership, it's very others-focused. You're able to see other people and think, here's where they need to go spiritually, and I'm going to take steps using God's methods to help them get there. That's what elders should be all about. And that's, I think, the description here in verse 8 of what an elder should be. So how do they do that? What are God's methods to make sure that this happens within the life of the church? And this is our last characteristic in verse 9. They are able in the word. Look at verse 9 with me. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders do not use their own wisdom or smarts. They're not extra savvy guys, business gurus who lead the church. That's not what God's looking for. They serve others with the knowledge that they really themselves don't have anything to offer in serving others. They serve others knowing that the only thing they have to offer is the Word of God. It's the truths of Scripture. And so they're fully dependent and fully committed to God's Word. Look back at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught. He's committed to it personally. They cling to the teaching of the Bible in every situation. Because it's trustworthy, it can be relied upon. They cling to this book, and then they do two things with it in verse 9. You have both sides of the coin here. First of all, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So positively... Elders are supposed to be able to teach systematically the Bible and present sound doctrine to people. Now, that that phrase is really fascinating, sound doctrine. It's not just doctrine, it's sound doctrine. So what is he talking about there? Why, Why phrase it that way? Why say sound doctrine? Sound doctrine is teaching that brings spiritual health and wholeness to those who hear it. It helps people to get where they need to be spiritually. Sound doctrine accords with the way things really are. And so you help people to see the world from God's perspective, 
as things really are. You're able to explain why things are happening in our culture based on the Word of God and the truths that are there. And our series is titled Doctrine Works because this is the goal of the teaching of Scripture. It's to bring wholeness and well-being to us, and it's to be lived out in our lives every single day. But they can't just teach doctrine from Scripture systematically and sort of lay out what the Bible teaches. They also have to be able to respond almost on the fly to false teaching. Look at back at verse 9. You must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There's a, I think there's a tendency in people's lives, we all do this, where we just sort of, we hear teaching and we sort of throw it into the pot with everything that we've already been taught, even if it doesn't match up with what Scripture teaches. And we, we just sort of imbibe it and take it in and just sort of put it all together. And what we have to do, what the church has to do is say, no, this doesn't match up with Scripture. This is wrong. And this will not lead to wholeness and well-being in your life because it's not sound doctrine. It's unsound doctrine. It won't lead to spiritual health. It'll actually take you down the wrong path. And so elders have to be responsible to know that and to know the Scriptures well enough to be able to point that out and to help people who could be led astray by false doctrine. And ultimately, that's a loving thing to do, to protect people from the harm of false teaching. And you'll see why that's so important for elders on this island of Crete. In fact, look at verse 10. For, so he's explaining why these qualifications are so important for leadership in the church. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. These are false teachers who have gotten into this baby church and they're starting to lead people astray. And so Paul says to Titus, look, you've got to put men in leadership in this church who are not self-willed, who take care of their families, who love others and are hospitable to others and love what is good. And they're able to teach the word clearly. And they're also able to contradict these false teachers who are wreaking havoc in the churches. Look at verse 16. We'll talk about this passage next week, but here's the end. Actually, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's the end goal of the false teachers. That's where it leads. And so Paul says we need right instruction that keeps us as a church from that. So that's a, that's a lot to take in. And that seems like a pretty lofty picture of an elder. But keep in mind, this is a young church, and there's grace, and it's not perfection, but it is the direction of these men's lives that goes toward these character qualities. And there's a demonstration of the reality of them in their lives and I think for the broader church, this is the aspiration of others within the church is, I want to be like this. I want to put on these qualities. Because when we have people who demonstrate these things and lead with these qualities, then 
We have a healthy church, a healthy body that is able to accomplish the mission. It's well-organized, it has quality leadership, and they're able to reach the nations and the surrounding community with the gospel. And that's the ultimate goal in the first place. That's what we're going for. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word once again. We're thankful for this challenge concerning church leadership, concerning elders. And I pray that you would uh, use this in our lives, use this in the broader church body to help us know what sort of leaders we should have and what to aspire to and how important the word of God is in our lives and how dangerous false teaching is. But also use this in the lives of the elders here in the leadership. Help us to grow in these areas and to demonstrate these things as we're carried along by your grace and by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for our time together this morning, and I pray that you would be with us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here for a few moments. In Christ's name we pray.